appreciate that. The worship team always gives a final prayer at the end. Uh, hope you take that seriously, you know, as with, with all prayers, but I'll just let you know that this morning, first service, uh, I stood up here. I didn't feel like being here. You ever, you ever get that essential? Oh, What's the matter with that? Well, that's a good question, but what was the matter with me? So basically said, Lord, you got to do something, right? You got to do something. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it was, if I had, hadn't prepared myself spiritually or whatever, but um, wow, the Lord did something. So, you know, it's okay to walk in here and feel like, I don't want to be here. I'm not sure if I'm ready to learn. Well, you know what? Uh, whatever I do in preparation, uh, that's nothing compared to what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, he knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you need uh, today. That's kind of what you, you just prayed. So that's that's always and only my prayer. So uh, not that you have to be all smiling by the end. That's not my point. Uh, but I felt like the Lord worked in my life, even though it didn't, didn't start off the way I wanted to. So we're praying the same thing for you all. And if you turn to Titus chapter 1, this, uh, you know, for me, preaching is, is kind of an adventure because I approach the text, I never know what's next. You know, it might be, it might cover this in one sermon, and, and I, I got to the first sermon, like, no, this is a two-sermon. And uh, I got to this week, I'm like, no, it's at least, uh, well, this is the third one, it's going to be four now in this, this passage. So hopefully it's becoming familiar to you. So chapter 1, verse 1 of Titus, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul says there that he uh, left Timothy, uh, rather Titus there, to appoint elders in every town. I talked about last week, you know, that appointing was a one-time Thing in the early church, because there were no other elders, uh, Titus had to do the job himself. Well, you know, that's not how we, well, we work at Grace Church. Uh, we have elders, we have this elder selection committee, and uh, we give them the responsibility, we give them the stewardship of then choosing our elders. You know, they'll, they'll interview them uh, and uh, have an application process, all that, in order to be discerning and wise about this process. And that's laid out for you in the bulletin. You should receive the email uh, that talks about that, etc. Um, and the, I think the cool thing this year is that we've got two elder candidates. Uh, not only that, we, 
it's really rare that we have two elder candidates at one time. We've never had two elder candidates who have never been elders before. So that, that's kind of a new and exciting, encouraging fact for us. But here's, here's my goal, kind of in this process, I'm going to lay out a vision, a vision statement for you. Not just for elders, not just for the elder selection committee, uh, but for discipleship in general. This is what I'd like to see happen at Grace Church over long term. And I've uh, once heard that if you have a vision statement, it ought to fit on a t-shirt. Because if it doesn't fit on a t-shirt, chances are it's too long, right? If I had a t-shirt that was like, you know, like a thousand words, you know, you're, you're not going to read that. But uh, here is my discipleship vision on a t-shirt to make the job of the Elder Selection Committee very joyful and very difficult. Now, you may not know what that means. Let me explain that to you. Uh, what I'd love to see is a small army of men at Grace Church, all of whom are qualified to be an elder. A small army of men at Grace Church, or a large army of men at Grace Church, who are qualified to serve in as elder. Can you imagine, in the, from the perspective of the Elder Selection Committee, if there were 20, 30 men who were qualified to be elders? How, how would they respond to that? What would their emotion be? Well, that would be joyful, right? Oh my goodness, praise the Lord. We have a small army of men who are qualified to serve as an elder. What a delight it would be for the committee to know uh, so many that they had to choose from. Um, what if there were, you know, so obviously we're not going to have a board that big, you know, even in, in mega churches. Well, actually, I've seen elder boards at least 20, which I think is just crazy. Uh, even more than that, uh, I don't think that's wise. We, we would never have an elder board of 20 or 30, uh, but just knowing that they, there were that many would be a, a, a reason for joy for the elder committee. But what, what other kind of emotion would they have? They'd be like overwhelmed, right? How are we going to do this? Uh, there's so many qualified people. It's like the rest of our choices in life, right? Uh, living in this prosperous Western society in which we live, we're constantly faced with, with so many choices, uh, we can't even make choices about what kind of ice cream to get or where to go for dinner that night, you know? Uh, just so many choices. The same thing would be for them. It would be difficult to choose one or two hours from a group of 20 or 30 men. So that's my goal, is discipleship for the entire church, that we can raise up an army of men uh, that such that it would make the job of the Elder Selection Committee both inc incredibly joyful, but also very difficult as well. But the question might, you might think, well, why would we even want that many qualified men? Do we really need that many elders or that many people that, that couldn't be, could be elders? In fact, uh, isn't that kind of a, a high calling? You know, it's, the Lord only lays that mantle of responsibility and service on a few men, and, and that certainly doesn't apply to me, therefore. And if you're a woman, you're thinking, well, it certainly doesn't apply to me. Well, here's a really common misunderstanding about what it means to be an elder. That it's some kind of, uh, it, it, is, it is a calling, and we'll get into that, uh, but I think we make it into something much more than it isn't. And a couple of scripture passages, we're going to go back to the, uh, for, we're going to go to 1 Timothy here, uh, which says this, uh, The saying is true, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There are two passages. You've got 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Together, those are the qualifying passages. That's where you go to find out what an elder should look like. And this one has a very shocking word in it, and, and I've highlighted it for you so you can see it. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Uh, now, now, at best, 
that word seems a little bit weird to us, doesn't it? The word aspire, because some reason, something inside of us doesn't feel right to aspire to an elder. You know, you think, well, the person ought to be willing to serve. Obviously, that, that's a good thing, but, but should they really want it? Because it almost sounds maybe a little bit selfish, maybe, maybe self-promoting, uh, that sort of thing. Now, now, it's certainly quite possible that there'd be some men that would have poor motives for wanting to be an elder. Maybe they want recognition. Maybe, maybe they like to be in the spotlight, and, and hopefully we can weed those kind of men out of the process. However, just as it is wrong to want to be an elder for selfish reasons, the Bible is clear that you should also actually want to be an elder. As the text says, you should aspire to it, in fact. Let me show you the, the depth of this word aspire by comparing it to another well-known verse uh, from the same book, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Uh, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Uh, I think we can all agree that the word longing here is a longing for the wrong thing, right? It's a longing for the love of money. It's a, it's a selfish coveting kind of a longing that leads to, to dreadful consequences, very harmful consequences. Well, just so you know, the word aspire and the word longing are the exact same word in the Greek. So that, that's the kind of the idea that Paul is trying to get across here, that a man ought to long, ought to desire, ought to aspire to be an elder. So this is a very strong kind of law. It's not just like, yeah, I'll do it, I'm willing. It's a desire to do it. Uh, years ago, before Tim Farrell became an elder, he was considering it, he had this kind of an angst going on. It's like, you know, yeah, I guess I'm willing, but uh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified. I don't, I don't really want to do it. And I challenged him with that verse in 1 Timothy 1. I said, Tim, do you aspire, do you desire to be an elder? And uh, he had what he, what he later called a, a false humility. You know, just saying, well, I'm not qualified and I shouldn't want it because nobody should want that sort of thing. And that was good. That's, that's good in one sense. He didn't want to presume uh, upon, upon anything or presume that he was fully qualified, etc. And he certainly wasn't seeking prestige in any way. So, so that was good. But he did not yet quite grasp that it was something to be desired. It was something that you're supposed to aspire to. Uh, and that desiring to serve is not only an uh, acceptable thing, it's a necessary attribute. So it helped him have a, a better understanding of what it means to serve the church. And now we get to remove him from the elder board. No impropriety, just the bylaws say, it's time to go, you've served your, your, your six years. So, so any potential elder should desire to be an elder, but I believe that desiring to be an elder is actually potentially a good thing for any man in the church. And let me explain why. The qualifications that we're going to look at this morning and next week, the qualifications, almost all of them for being an elder, are actually obtainable by any man. And more than that, they should be desirable because these character traits are simply the traits of a mature disciple. To aspire to be an elder is simply to aspire to know Jesus better. To, to aspire to be an elder is simply to aspire to know Jesus better. It's not like there's some kind of golden crown that descends from the sky and, and, and lays a mantle upon some men and not, not other men, although there is a sense where, where there's a calling to it. Certainly God is involved in that, but, but it's not in the way that we tend to think it is. 
It's merely a matter of growing in relationship with Christ. And I, I can demonstrate this, I can show this to you just from the book of Titus. Uh, first of all, I'll remind you, we talked about last week, there are two tests of Manila. There's a character test and a doctrinal test. We'll, we'll flush these out as we go, but this, this list here is predominantly uh, falls under the character test. So we have on the left side uh, the qualifications in Titus chapter 1 for elders, and then qualifications for all believers in Titus chapter 2. Let's compare these. An elder is not to be arrogant or quick-tempered. Well, all believers, the standard is not to be slanderous and, and be dignified. Elders are not to be drunkards. Well, all believers are not a slave to wine, not to be controlled by anything except by the Holy Spirit. Elders are to be lovers of good. Well, listen, all believers are supposed to be model of good works. Titus 1, elders, self-controlled, holy, disciplined. All believers, self-controlled, reverent, steadfast. Elders, teach sound doctrine. All believers, teach what is good. Uh, the only one that was not an exact comparison was, was hospitality, to be hospitable. However, there are three New Testament writers I have up there that all say, listen, hospitality is for all believers. And then the one that stands out, and we'll talk about that this morning, the husband of one wife. So, did you see almost all of these qualifications for being an elder can apply to not only all men, but also to all women. women. So my vision would be to have an army of men who could serve as an elder, whether or not they ever do. That, that's really beside the point. Uh, so men, as we begin this message, let me challenge you. Do you aspire to be an elder? Or ask another way. Do you aspire, do you want to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ? Do you want to be continually transformed by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ? That's the challenge I'm laying down at the beginning of this message. So with all that in mind, I want to work our way now through these elder qualifications. And, and as we do this, let me make a comment about uh, all of our elder candidates, but uh, I, I wish... In one sense, I wasn't giving this message right now, right in the midst of when we're like, oh, let me let me see uh, Don Green, Luke Hardcock, you know, let's let's take a good hard look at their lives. Well, let me remind you this: that uh, Ron Lisney is up; uh, his term is up, so he is also uh, quote unquote under scrutiny. Scott Nipras' two-year term is up, so he is up for a third-year term, so you ought to apply the same level of discernment in their lives. And guess what? Seth and I are both elders, uh, so you ought to apply the same level of discernment in our lives. Uh, so consider all those men uh, as we go along, and don't, don't just you know pick on them, but, but certainly a means of being uh, discerning through this process. So again, uh, two tests, there's a character test and a doctrinal test, and Paul begins with the, uh, predominantly with the character test. And he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now we have twice here, two verses, verse 6 and verse 7, Paul lays down the need to be above reproach. Now, first of all, what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean perfection. And if it meant, you know, some kind of sinless perfectionism, we would never have any elders in any church. It would just be impossible. Uh, but to be above reproach is a summary statement of what's going to follow. So it says, be above reproach, and here's what I mean, all of the attributes that follow. So, so in other words, if Paul was describing uh, an athletic event or an athletic uh, prowess, 
he would say, I require all athletes to be in tip-top shape. And here's what I mean. To be in tip-top shape, you've got to run a mile in seven minutes, you've got to bench press 200 pounds, and you have to have a vertical jump of 18 inches. That's all what it means to be in tip-top shape. Same idea here. What it means to be above approach is all the things that follow after that. And the first item on this character list is for an elder to be the husband of one wife. And we've already seen here in this, this comparison list that it's unique to the role of an elder, the, the role of a potential elder. It doesn't apply to all believers. And what this phrase means, a husband or one wife, it literally means a one-woman man. Simply that, one-woman man. And this sort of thing has caused a lot of debate over the years. And uh, it, most people have, have thought, well, it means that polygamy is forbidden. And that makes a lot of sense because in the early church, in the, the Greek uh, culture, the first century, now you might think that that kind of pagan culture, you know, every man must have had two or three wives and, and all this uh, gross, disgusting stuff going on. And, and certainly, you know, paganism will do that. But polygamy was actually not all that common uh, in the first century Greek, Greek culture, but it certainly existed. So no doubt there are going to be some men with more than one wife, and they get radically converted to Christ, and now they're growing in their faith, and somebody says, well, well maybe we ought to you know, consider Joe as an elder, so now they have to wrestle with this, right? Uh, same thing occurs all over the world today. Uh, there are cultures that, that are still polygamous, uh, and people get saved, and they have to have those same kinds of conversations. So uh, we could say, at the very least, I think everyone agrees that being uh, an elder is uh, is forbidding uh, polygamy. And I'm glad to say, I'm pretty sure every man at Grace Church uh, is not a poly polygamist. So we can check that one off the list. But some would say this eliminates anyone who has ever been divorced because, hey, you've got now not just one wife, but you had two wives at one point. Now, let's establish a fact. We know that God hates divorce, right? We, we understand that divorce separates uh, the most intimate relationship in our lives. But even with that, God allows for divorce, doesn't he? Because he realizes there, there can be relational breakdowns and all kinds of ugly sin that would allow for that. Um, but as with most sins, it all depends on, on when it happened. For example, you see the standard there, an elder cannot be a drunkard. But let's, let's, back, let's backpedal, let's say you've got an elder candidate up for consideration, and before he was saved, you know, say 10 years ago, he was an alcoholic, he struggled with alcohol. Does that make him not uh, allowed, not qualified to be an elder? We would say, of course not, right? We understand uh, that was 10 years ago. That's BC. That's before he knew Jesus. And, and now, uh, praise the Lord, he, he's over that. And he's growing and he's maturing and he's serving and, and he's a, a, a self-controlled individual. So yes, potentially then he is qualified. He is not disqualified by that. Because if we had that sort of standard, I mean, think about all, all the sins, not only sins we've done since we've been saved, but uh, the things before we were saved. Uh, again, no one would be qualified for this. For this, so so I believe the same standard applies for divorce, and it's it's not even clear. First of all, that the phrase "one woman man" applies to divorce. I think it probably does uh, in some cases, 
but divorce is not in the text, so we're not 100% sure. But even if it does apply to divorce, a pre-conversion divorce does not apply so long as the man now is faithfully uh, loving his wife. He's a faithful and loving husband, along with all the other qualifications that are listed here. Last week, uh, I described a little bit the process that, that Seth is entering into in terms of ordination, and pretty, pretty rigorous uh, sort of thing to be ordained within the free church. And the free church has said that they will not ordain any man who has been divorced except for three exceptions. And here they are. Adultery by one spouse, based on Matthew 19. Desertion by an unbeliever, based on 1 Corinthians 7, both of which are... Uh, exceptions for, for any any believer uh, to have a divorce and to remarry, uh, a, a potential exception anyway, not a necessary exception, and then pre-conversion divorce. So here we have even the EFC with their rigorous ordination process, they say, yes, uh, what happened before conversion uh, ought not to be considered unless those same patterns are still happening. Now, not talking about the exceptions per se, per se but I wish more churches, more denominations would hold this standard high. All the standards I'm talking about, especially this one woman, man standard. I think we'd be a lot better off if we held our standards where the Bible holds those standards. Now, sometimes there are going to be some churches who are too stringent. And they would, you know, it's almost nobody can pass the muster. And, and that's wrong, of course. But what is happening, I think, by and large, is people are not adding restrictions, they're eliminating restrictions to the point where there's almost little to no standards anymore. For example, I know several pastors, not personally, but heard of them, uh, who have had affairs and returned to pastoring within one year. That, that just not, ought not to be. Billy Graham's grandson was a pastor who had affairs with three women, tried to have affairs with three other women, married the woman that, the third woman that he had an affair with, and a year later was an associate pastor at the church. These things ought not to be. And then just last Sunday, the same man launched a new church in Florida. And I'd like to read something from their website and see what you think of it. The name of the church is Sanctuary. The Sanctuary is a judgment-free zone where people can come as they are, not as they should be. A place to find love and laughter and hope and healing and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy and help. Sadly, churches tend to be the scariest places rather than the safest places for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break down. The Sanctuary strives to be different. Answer this question. Does this, if, if you didn't know the setup, the, the, the background I gave you, would that be a church that you would like to attend? I, I'm seeing a little bit of no and a little bit of yes, you know, kind of a mixture there uh, because there is a sense, you know, depending on how you're reading it, uh, what you're bringing to the table, that it sounds inviting, right? I mean, listen, I, you know, I, I, I describe my, my brokenness this morning, whatever you want to call that, right? We come broken. We're all fallen people. We sin every single day. So yes, we want that sort of church. We don't want a church where, where we, somebody comes to the door like, man, I know those issues, right? I know what, what, what Sam has gone through, and, and, and let's, let's just stay away because that's a little bit too messy. 
That's the last kind of church we ever want to be. That, that, that disgusts me, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, however, what's happening here is, is very, very different. Uh, that's not what this pastor means, and I'm certain that he wrote this. He means that he should not be held accountable for any of his sins, even as a pastor, no matter how terrible they might be. Not only that, he is yet to repent of or apologize to any of these women. So he's not even repentant. What he wants is not a judgment-free zone, but a morality-free zone. We've come a long way from his grandfather, uh, after whom they named a rule called the Billy Graham Rule. You might be more familiar with it. It's now called the Mike Pence Rule, which simply states, uh, do your best, uh, everything in your power, to never be alone with another woman who is not your wife. And of course, that's where Billy Graham, that was, that was his pattern. That's why they named the quote-unquote rule after him. He was very diligent about uh, that accountability process and never being alone with another woman. But yes, of course, any sin can be forgiven. Any person can be fully restored. Any person can be fully restored, even to the point of ministry and leadership in ministry. However, and th this is my opinion, you can differ with me on this, I feel that especially if somebody is currently a pastor, an elder, by the way, they're exactly the same thing, biblically speaking, an elder is a pastor, is a shepherd, so, so they all have the same qualification. If you're serving as an elder and a pastor and you commit adultery, my opinion is that that permanently disqualifies you from being a pastor again. Again, you might be in some kind of really important leadership or ministry role, uh, but no, no, I, I think, I think you're, you're done. Uh, at that point, just because it's such a betrayal, not only uh, of God and the gospel, but whatever you flock. And, and especially given the fact that, that most of those affairs happen between somebody, a uh, pastor, and someone in the flock, which is a whole other level uh, of abuse that we don't even have time uh, to get into this morning. So we're talking about being a one-woman man, and being a one-woman man means a lot more than merely avoiding adultery. Being a one-woman man means that the husband only has wives. I slip of the tongue. You caught me. It's a discerning crowd. Only has eyes. See where I'm how I mess that up. Only has eyes for his wife. Let's say it again. A one-woman man only has eyes for his how many? One wife. There we go. Uh, Okay, now listen carefully. <laughs> it also means that there ought not to be even the slightest hint of impropriety in his relationship with the opposite sex. It means that, again, humanly possible, you're never alone with someone, a woman, other than your wife. It means that you never allow yourself, not, not just to have physical uh, contact or, or some kind of relationship with another woman, but not even an emotional relationship, that you guard your heart constantly so you never have any feelings, right, uh, for another woman. It means having accountability software installed on all of your electronic devices so there's never a temptation to view porn of any kind. I am convinced that every man needs at the best, and that's like the bottom line, guys, and I've talked about this many times. That's the that's first step in, in guarding your heart, in, 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 in guarding your eyes. 
is accountability software. I'm convinced every man needs it because some men already have some sort of addiction to porn or they're leading down that path. Or if you don't, then this is one of the great ways to guard yourself from temptation so that it doesn't happen. Being a one-woman man means loving Christ so much that you would never want to be anything other than a one-woman man. That's what it means. Now, that's a challenge. That's hard. But in many ways, uh, the next phrase might be more challenging. And it says, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I've had uh, a couple elders tell me the last few weeks that when I read that verse, they're like kind of squirming in their seats. You know, like, oh man, you know, that's a really challenging qualification for elders. And it's challenging because it's not just the character of the man that's in question, right? But, but now we're evaluating his whole family. The, the whole family is now under the microscope. And maybe the most challenging part of this challenging section is the fact that an elder shown the text says it has to be believers. So it seems like, you know, if you're an elder, you want to be an elder, and, and you've got a child who, who doesn't seem to believe or isn't walking with the Lord, well, well you're not Paul. I don't think that's exactly what it means. And, and let me explain why. And for that, I'm going to jump back to 1 Timothy 3. Remember, parallel passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, the two passages that talk about uh, qualifications for an elder. And this one says, it reads very differently, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, <coughs> keeping his children submissive. Now, there's a really important word there. I think the key word is manage. Manage his household, which is another way of saying he's being a good steward of his family. And where's that word? Well, that word, word steward is also in Titus 1. As God's steward. So stewardship, management, same idea. And what it's saying is that this husband is training and disciplining his children such that, generally speaking, by and large, they, they are submissive and obedient children. Again, there's no standard of perfection. Uh, we're not talking about... You know, kids are all lined up perfectly in a row, and the hair is combed, and there's, there's never any uh, uh, nonsense going on in the pews. I mean, we got lots of nonsense in the pews. That's good. That's a good thing. So many kids and, and things happening, so, so that's a good thing. No standard of perfection. Matter of fact, first service, uh, right when I was reading that exact verse, got Scott Nipproth, one of our elders, sitting out there uh, and with a squirmy kid, uh, you know, making all kinds of noise. Fantastic, right? That doesn't disqualify a person uh, in, in the slightest bit. Um, so, not a standard of perfection. Uh, but there is this general principle that the man stewards his household, that he manages his home as well as he can. But notice here in 1 Timothy, it says nothing about his children being believers, right? And I think that's really significant. And it helps us understand why I don't think the, the standard is that his children all have to be believers. And the first reason is that the word believers is the same word that we get faith or belief, same exact word. So it actually could mean here, and a lot of uh, translators have changed this to faithful instead of believers. Now, what does a faithful child look like? Well, a faithful child is essentially a submissive and obedient child. Therefore, do you see, when you use the word faithful instead of believers, it becomes a parallel, becomes an exact parallel passage to the first Timothy passage, that his children are generally submissive, that his children are generally faithful. Second reason why I don't think 
it means that all the Chilhappy believers is, the fact is, how do you even know, right? How do you know when a child is genuinely, genuinely converted or not? You know, they might make a profession of faith, they might get baptized, they might, you know, even read their Bibles on occasion, but you don't know for sure. And when the kids are really young, and the, kid, the elder candidate has a lot of kids, you just can't know for sure because most people, your faith comes to full reality when you enter into the adult years. Uh, and, and if uh, that also could put pressure on, you know, a man, and it happens whether they're thinking about being elder or not, they put pressure on their kids to conform. So it then becomes an outward obedience or an, even, even an outward profession of faith as opposed to something that comes from within. One of the things that I think Karen and I did well in all of our parenting mistakes and sins now for almost 25 years is that we did our best not to put pastor-kid mantle on our own children. Now, uh, any, anybody that's been a pastor-kid or missionary-kid here? Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a few, there's a few. Uh, so you know of what I speak, uh, and if you're not a pastor's kid, you probably, or mission, missionary kid, you probably talk to those that have been. Uh, so we did our best not to lay that pressure on them. Now, there's some of that, that, that that's unavoidable, right? Uh, there's, uh, and I always ask for permission. Uh, well, 95% of the time, I ask for permission. I'll throw them in a sermon illustration, which I'm doing this morning, uh, here in a little bit. Uh, and, and of course, right? You just can't avoid. It. Oh, they're they're Mauer's kids, so I don't. I, whatever. I don't. I don't know how you look at my kids. I honestly don't. And I honestly don't care in many ways because that's not. You are not my standard. What's my standard? The Word of God is my standard. And it all comes down to motive, doesn't it? What is my motive? Is my motive to have well-behaved and disciplined, obedient children, so that you think I'm qualified? Right? That's insane. But again, it, it, it's all too common. It can be happen. Or do I want that because it's the right thing? That's what a good parent does. That's what, 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 what Jesus wants. It's all a matter of motives in that point. And thankfully, our kids have, have shared a couple times that, that that was their experience. That, that by and large, they just felt like a regular part of the church. And honestly, you know, kind of kid, kidding about all you guys, but you, you made that very much the case as well. Uh, that you you didn't you know uh, put this pressure on them because that that pressure can come from the pastor it can also uh, come from the church now doesn't mean we're perfect parents but we did our best not to pressure them in this way and I'll show you a little video clip and then uh, make mention of something related to that. <laughs> So you're eight years old and you have a full orchestra backing you up. You're something special, right? No question about that. Karen showed us this clip last night and as soon as we got done, Ethan says, uh, I wonder what his parents are like, right? You know, kind of, kind of thinking, boy, I wonder if they're pressuring this young kid to perform like that. We have no idea, right? Uh, I, I read a little bit about the young man, but I don't know much at all. We have no idea. They could be the most loving parents on the planet, or they could be some kind of crazy people who recognize uh, their little boy has a, a prodigious talent, and they're gonna they're gonna put a lot of pressure. We we, we don't know. 
but I'm sure you've run across a pastor or two who, who has put pressure on the kids. And what happens is that that's, that creates a, a scenario where there's just massive hypocrisy, right? You see what I mean? Because the, and this can happen with any family, by the way, not just a pastor's family. They show up at church, and, and they do have their hair combed, and smiles on their faces, and the kids are all marching, you know, according to, to the commands of Dad. But at home, it's a mess. Home is an absolute train wreck, right? That is the definition of massive hypocrisy. They look like a model family, but in reality, they're not managing their household at all. Also, think about it this way. And, and listen to this question. It, I'll give you a hint. It might be a trick question, or it might not. All right? Uh, but listen to this question. As parents, are we responsible to make sure our children are converted to Christ? As parents, are we responsible to make sure our children are converted to Christ? Yes or no? No. Okay, no. Here, I'm here mostly no. You're absolutely right. No, we are not. We are, what are we responsible for? We are responsible to lead them to Christ. We are responsible to follow Christ with our heart, soul, and mind and to model that to our family as best as possible. But we can't make our children believe in Jesus any more than we can make anybody on the planet believe in Jesus because that's not only not our responsibility, it's outside of our power. We can't actually do it. God, salvation is the Lord's domain alone. It belongs to Him. So it seemed odd to me to make an elder responsible for all their children to believe. Did you see what I mean? So it makes a lot more sense that it, it, it's the same idea as laid out in, in 1 Timothy 3, that they're faithful, they're submissive, they're obedient children by and large, but it doesn't require that they all become believers. Because problems are going to arise in any family just as they continually arise in all of life. So the standard here, no matter which one you're choosing, is not perfection, but how a man manages these things, how a man stewards the struggles and challenges of parenting and of life in general. So when an issue arises, and it will, uh, generally they arise on the way to church, right, or on the way home from church when the problems arise. When issues arise, the question is, is he trusting the Lord for the outcome? Or like a lot of men, is he trying to control is he seeking godly counsel from others? Or is he afraid of being vulnerable and, and won't reach out at all? Is he modeling patience, love, and steadfastness? Or, or is he kind of twisting his children into submission? See, I hope you're seeing that the, the vast majority of what it means to be an elder is simply growing in your own relationship with the Lord. Yes, it is a call. Yes, uh, when it gets to the office... The, the shepherding uh, of a church, it is a call, and you ought to want to do what I'm saying. You ought to want to do this stuff anyway. It's just what Jesus wants from us. It applies to all men and even all women. It's also, by the way, and we'll get into this in future weeks, it's a call to serve fundamentally. It's not just to be a, a certain person, uh, but to live in a certain way. And fundamentally, that's a call to serve and a call to do ministry. Um, and what I think, you know, this sort of passage could bring about is a, lay, the Lord laying, I'm using this opportunity to lay on somebody a, a call to vocational ministry, right? 
to realize, okay, this is obtainable, uh, to serve the Lord full time with my life and to, to make a vocation out of it, well, that's simply following Jesus. And you follow Jesus long enough, and he might say, listen, I want you to do this as a career, not just in your volunteer time. I, was, I, I picked on Brent first service because he was sitting right where John was because he's a, 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 a young man who has made tremendous sacrifices. Anybody that works at Living Waters uh, makes tremendous sacrifices to serve the Lord vocationally with their lives. And, and Brent reminded me, I asked him about that calling, and I said, well, Brent, when did that happen? He said it was late high school for him, all right? So you're 15, 16, 17-year-olds, pay attention. The Lord might be laying that mantle upon you to vocational minister, to missions work, whatever the case may be. But in Brad's experience, what was he doing? And I've said this many times, he was just doing stuff. He was just serving the Lord. He was, just, he was helping out in youth group. And, and the more he did, the more he enjoyed it. Then he got involved in some camping ministry. First he thought he was going to be a youth pastor. Then the Lord kind of said no. Uh, and just little by little, led him into, first of all, vocational ministry. Because we're all, what, in full-time ministry. That, that's the standard for all believers. Full-time ministry. You're ministering full-time. Some of us get paid for it. That's our vacation. Uh, so the Lord led him into vocational ministry and then kind of led even more specifically into camping ministry, which he feels really is a long-term calling for him. So perhaps the Lord is putting even a seed thought. Because sometimes sometimes this happens all at once. I was sitting, I, I received a call uh, sitting in a Sunday school class when the teacher wasn't there uh, and, and somebody else was, was, was teaching that day and man, it just fell upon me. It's like, all right, that's it, Lord. That's what you're calling me to. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Lord just puts a little seed in your heart and says, would you consider? Would you consider this? Would you And that starts with, would you consider... Cleaning the church, right, Tim? Uh, would you consider helping out in children's church? Would you consider being an elder one day? Would you consider aspiring to the qualifications, the, 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 the character of being an elder? That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now let me ask him to do that in our lives. Father, thank you for your spirit that we are not alone in in teaching or sharing truth with others, that your spirit is all powerful and convicts of sin where necessary, encourages and comforts the brokenhearted when that is needed, and also calls to service and to ministry. And, and of course, biblically, you're always calling all of us into ministry and service, but, but sometimes, Lord, there, there's a special thing that you want to happen. And Father, if that's the case with anyone here this morning, I would ask that, that by your sovereign power, you, you would plant seeds in hearts. Perhaps it's more than that. Perhaps you, you're, you're, some are feeling this heavy weight of, of guidance and power this morning. Something, something's different in their heart and mind. Help them discern that. Thank you, Lord, for these beautiful passages and for the power of the Spirit to obey them. In Jesus' name, amen.